Well, we have two weeks left in Ephesians chapter 1, and it's been so rich. My times of preparation have just been like times of worship. It's been amazing. You know, um, so this week we're looking at verses 18 and 19 in chapter 1, and when we were first planning for the church plant and talking about, you know, how it would look and what we were going to be known for and what we wanted to do as far as ministry, and I was thinking just about my own preaching and what kind of a preacher that I wanted to be, and I thought God was calling me to be. And one of the convictions that we have as elders and that I have personally is that the majority of our preaching should be what I call consecutive exposition, meaning working your way through a book of the Bible consecutively. That's not the only right way to do it. There's a lot of guys who preach differently, and God uses that as well. But the neat thing about doing things this way is that God's providence is highlighted because at certain times, certain texts come out and fit the context of our body perfectly. And I think that's one of the things that happened this week because we're talking about the hope to which we've been called as believers. And this has been a really interesting couple of weeks. And there's been a lot of unknown things and a lot of things in the culture and the world around us that seem to be a little bit hopeless and depressing. And so God and his wisdom has brought us to this passage today. And I just think that's really cool. It's just the way that God's word works. I didn't scour the Bible for a text that would match what I think we're going through. It just came up in the way that we're preaching. And so I'm so thankful for God's word. I'm so thankful for you and for the opportunity to minister and to preach. So I want you to bow your heads and pray with me as we begin this morning, if you would. Lord, in the Old Testament, we read that your word is a fire and a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. And sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need the solid, unmoving, unwavering word to break the way that we think, the way that we have thought. We need the truth of your word to penetrate and to crumble the constructs that we've made in our own minds and in our hearts. The psalmist says that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We need your word to illuminate where we walk, to show us the way of truth. So many descriptions about what the Bible is. It's sweet like honey. It's foolishness to those who don't believe, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so, Lord, would your word this morning be all of those things to us? There's nothing that I can do standing up here to manufacture some kind of an outcome. But if you come by your spirit, Father, and work your word into our hearts, we know that it will have its effect. And so, Lord, as I preach, take me out of the way. Would your word be the thing that people remember? And as these brothers and sisters listen this morning, 
Would they be expositional listeners? Would they read along and follow along? And I pray for the eyes of their hearts to be open, just as you have opened mine. This is only a work that you can do, Father. We are helpless without you. So we come needy. We come empty, a lot of us, needing to be filled. So I pray that you do this work in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was looking at this text this week, I was thinking about the passage in terms of a story. When we think of a story, at least when I think of a story, every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, unless it's a terrible story and that it only has one of those things. And some of you, when you read books, this is something we'll have to do counseling about, you jump to the end of the book and read it before you start the beginning to figure out what's going on. I have a son who does this. I won't tell you which one it is, but it's not the oldest, the second, or the third. But you guys, you guys figure out. I'm not going to say any names. Um, but he jumps to the end of the book. And sometimes I used to grab the book he was reading and go, I'm going to spoil it for you and read the end. He goes, I already did. <laughs> so it kind of took the thunder out of me. But anyways, when we think about God and the history of redemption, the story of redemption that God has made, especially in the text in Ephesians today, I think we're going to see all three of those parts. We're going to see a beginning, the hope to which God called us, We're going to see the inheritance, which is the end, the thing that we're going for. And we're going to see the immeasurable strength and power of God, which is what preserves us in the middle to get to that end. And so I was just thinking in these terms, and I think this is one of the things that the Apostle Paul wants us to see as well. So if you haven't done so, open your Bible, please. If you don't have a Bible, they're available on the welcome table. We invite you to grab one and follow along with us. So I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1 starting at verse 15, and I invite you to follow along in your Bibles. Verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. When we come now to verse 18 in our study of Ephesians 1, we're still in the context of Paul's prayer for these churches. And last time we saw him pray that God would give these believers the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And now as he continues on, he's going to pray for their eyes to be opened, that they would understand three things, three characteristics of our salvation. So let's start here in verse 18, where Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Often in the Old Testament, a lot of us are reading through the Bible and you get to some of these Old Testament passages, the prophets will foretell a time when a light would come. Isaiah does this several times. Just, I'll give you one example. Isaiah 9, 
Um, we're getting into Christmas time, and a lot of us like Handel's Messiah. And a lot of the texts of Handel's Messiah come from these passages, and this is one of them. The people who walked in darkness, Isaiah 9, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. We get to the New Testament, then the Apostle John describes Jesus as the light that has come into the world, chapter 1 of John's Gospel. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul here in Ephesians 1 is going to remind these churches of these three magnificent realities. The hope of their call, the inheritance, and the power of God. But before he does that, he prays that the eyes of their heart would be illuminated, enlightened. Now, why would they need that? Because he's going to tell them just after that what these things are. So isn't it enough that they just hear Paul say, this is what it is. You have a hope, you have a calling, you have this. Well, no, it's not enough. As Christians, when we read the Bible, we need the thing that Paul prayed just earlier for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We don't want to read the Bible and have it be nonsense to us or foolishness, which is what happens if the eyes of our hearts are not enlightened or opened. You remember what I just read from Isaiah? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Well, guess what? We're all walking in this darkness. We all have this veil over our eyes, so to speak. And we need what Paul is praying for. We need the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. Paul uses this phrase, eyes of our hearts, to refer to, I think, the believer's ability or capacity to understand spiritual reality. Like I said, if we don't have this opening, if we're not constantly praying for God to open the eyes of our heart, to shed light on what we're reading, we're not going to understand what the Bible truly says. So this is why we need spiritual sight. And this is why Paul is praying this. Open their eyes, Lord, so that they would know these three things. So let's start with the first thing that he prays for. Number one, the hope to which we were called. And I say we because Paul is writing to these churches, right? All these churches in the area of Ephesus. But by extension, for everyone who has faith in Christ. So I don't think it's doing something wrong to say Paul is writing as well to us. That we can put these things into practice. So after asking for their spiritual eyes to be opened, which is the eyes of faith, right? He's not talking about some sort of eyeball on your heart muscle. He's talking about a spiritual sight. Paul's first request is that they would know the hope of their calling. And actually, you could put that phrase, that you would know, in front of all three of these things. Because that's what he's praying, that you would know the hope of your calling, that you would know what are the riches of the inheritance, that you would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. When Paul says that he desires for Christians to know something, and we've talked about this before when we were in Romans 5, it's more than just an understanding that something exists. It's it's more than just having the knowledge that I know this pulpit's here because it's here. It's more than that. For example, I can tell you um, that I'm reading a book about sailing, And I'm reading about how to tie the knots and how to rig the sails and how to keep the boat stable in the water and all this stuff. And so if you were to say, well, do you know about sailing? I'd say, yeah, yeah, I I know how to do that. But what if I actually went sailing? 
And I got in the water and weathered a couple rough seas or lakes or whatever you sail on and really tied the knots and found out they worked and whatever. I could say then, yeah, I know about sailing. Both cases you could say, yeah, I know. But we would consider that to be two very different kinds of knowing, wouldn't we? A knowing by reading or a knowing by experience. I'm not discounting the reading. We need that. But I think the knowing that we're dealing with here, and the word translated know means to have by experience. So when Paul says, I'm praying, God, that they would know, that they would experience this in their life. This is what God wants for us. Now, the language of experience can be tricky because it's not the same for everybody. So I can't stand up here and teach you, unless you have this experience, you don't know. That's just not true. The Holy Spirit works in every one of us differently. So don't hear experience and think, well, I didn't quite have the same experience as that person. I must not know. Okay, Paul wants us. The point is not that you have a certain experience, but that you have a rock-solid grip on what he's talking about. You understand what he's talking about. Earlier in chapter 1, we saw that the way that God had acted in history, the call that he had put on us was that to salvation. By divine sovereignty, he elected those who would be called to salvation. This is the beginning. And so now we're seeing this hope to which we were called is what God has called us to. The New Testament speaks often about what we are called to. The book of 1 Peter uses this phrase five times. I'm just going to list these for you really quick because I want you to see that there are many things that God calls us to. 1 Peter 1.15, God called us to be holy as he is holy, which of course comes from Leviticus that we're studying right now. Chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Peter, God called us out of darkness. Chapter 2, verse 21, God called us to suffer and to endure for his sake. Chapter 3, verse 9, God calls us not to repay evil for evil. In chapter 5, verse 10, he calls us to his own eternal glory. So the language of God calling us to something is quite common in the New Testament writing. And here, Paul wants us to know that God has called us to hope. He's called us to hope. Now we must ask here, Hope in what? Paul doesn't elaborate a lot. He just says, I want you to know the hope to which you were called to. So what are we to make of this? How are we to think about this hope? It's certainly not just a general hope. Hope in the Christian life is not just a sense of optimism. It's a trust in what God has done, what he has promised to do. Psalm 130 gives us an example of what we're to put our hope in. I believe this is the exhortation text for next week. Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. The hope to which God has called us to is a hope in God himself and what he is able to do. It's a hope and an optimism that God will hear our prayers that he'll prove his faithfulness and that he'll do what's right in the world. One of the main things that I've heard during the pandemic is that people are losing hope, that things around them seem hopeless. Now, whether this is, like David was praying, job-related or whether it's family or social constructs are being redefined or whatever that is, there's a sense of hopelessness in the world. 
Well, part of that is just the way that people perceive things. But you know what? As a Christian, speaking for myself, right now, this week, in this moment, I am very hopeful. You know why? It's not because I have more faith than someone else. It's not because I know a secret Bible code where if you take the third verse of every eighth chapter and put it together, it spells out something. That's not it. It's not how God works. I have hope because I know Jesus. I know what he's done. I know what he's promised to do in his word. And I can look back just like you can and see the track record of God's faithfulness. That doesn't mean it's been easy, but God has been faithful. And that's what we're to put our hope in. Now someone says, yeah, but but look at what's going on. Our religious liberties are being encroached upon and I'm telling you what, the government's one step away from shutting us down. Okay. I'm hopeful. You want to know why? Because a church driven underground is a church driven to prayer. And sometimes that's what it takes. You know, it's, it's not always the easy times that cause us to grow. So I'm hopeful. Who cares if they take the church building away? What if they take our home because you won't bow to some whatever? What if your life is threatened because of your faith in Jesus? Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. Listen to me this morning. The hope that we have is not that the United States of America will exist forever. Let it go and quit being so patriotic that you forget we are members of God's kingdom. I'm thankful for this place that we live, but this is not the Holy Land. This is not our eternal destiny, whatever that word is, destiny. Paul said in Philippians 3, our citizenship is where? In heaven. (laughs) And from heaven we await a Savior who will come and redeem our bodies with the power that he's able to subject everything to himself. So when this text in Ephesians tells us You've been called to a hope. It is not a hope that this life is going to be smooth. It just isn't. It's a hope that no matter what happens, your faith in Jesus has secured for you an eternal destiny that will never perish, that will never fade. And if you don't have it, you can have it this morning by asking Jesus to forgive your sin, transform your life, and you can come into his family. It's available, and you can have the hope that you were called to. Now, of course, someone could err on either side of this hope, right? You could, you could have so much hope in what's to come that you forget that, you know what, we really do live here. There's obligations, there's responsibilities. Or you could not believe that the hope is true, and you would despair about everything that's going on around us. And what I want to do as your pastor is to give you a call to balance. And I just know that in my life, 
I don't need reminders about how to live right here. I know we're here. I need reminders about what's coming. I need you to get in my face when I start moping and say, Jacob, this isn't all there is. We have a kingdom. We have a hope. We have a calling. That's what I need. And I would wager that's what you need. We know we're here. But sometimes what's in front of us becomes so tangible that we forget what's coming. I don't want you to forget. And I don't want to forget. So I need you to remind me and I am going to remind you that our hope is in Jesus. In Jesus alone. That's the reminder. There's a good passage that Paul uses to remind us of this. It comes from Colossians 3. And he says in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That's our hope. The hope that we have died to self, have been purchased by Jesus, and when he comes, he comes to get us. That's a hope. I think Paul sees this connection between our hope and then the inheritance that's coming. He makes this connection. The very next thing he talks about in verse 18 is the riches of this inheritance. So let's continue on and look at this in verse 18. That you would know the hope to which you were called, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul just said a few verses earlier that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance And I think he's still talking about what's waiting for us as believers. A lot of people have read this passage, and it says, what are the riches of his inheritance? Referring to, like, what God gets when his people are brought together. And, of course, there's a lot of texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about God's people being his inheritance, his possession. But because of the context, I think Paul is talking here about what is waiting for the believer as far as their inheritance. But just like the hope, Paul doesn't spell out for us immediately what the inheritance is. He just says, I want you to know what are the riches, the the abundance of this inheritance, and he wants us to know it's glorious. So I want to go outside of our text, and I think, again, going to 1 Peter, I think Peter does probably one of the most clear jobs of telling us what the inheritance is. So I invite you just to flip a couple books over. And if you want, or you can just follow along. I'm going to read just a couple verses from 1 Peter 1. And he starts very similar to how Paul starts Ephesians 1. So listen as I read, and then I'm going to just make a couple notes. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter gives us these three words to help us understand what this inheritance is, and I'm just going to give you a quick definition of each one of them. First, the inheritance is imperishable, meaning that it can never be taken away. We might think about the term imperishable in terms of food. I usually think of everything in terms of food. But let's just use it as an example. If you're going to an event and they say, bring five non-perishable food items with you, what do they mean? 
They mean bring something that isn't going to spoil. Bring Twinkies because they never go bad. Have you ever eaten a bad Twinkie? No, because they don't expire. They're nuclear. Okay, so imperishable means not able to be corrupted. It can never go bad. That's our inheritance. Number two, Peter tells us the inheritance is undefiled. It's clean. It has not been contaminated by sin, by the world, by the devil, and it never will be because it's being kept by God's power. It's hard for us to imagine because we compare things. If you're trying to understand what something is, we look for something to compare it to, right? That's what I do. And yet, we can't really compare it because we have never seen anything that's totally clean. You and I have never seen anything totally pure and free from sin. And so it's hard to get in our minds, what would that be like? It's undefiled. It can never be tainted or lose its effect. Lastly, the inheritance is unfading. What if God had called us to this eternal reward and this exquisite inheritance and then after about a hundred years it started to kind of lose its luster, lose its shine, kind of get boring or unappealing. That would never do. Sometimes you see older cars maybe parked in a field or something. They were probably shiny at first but age and weather and use has dulled the finish. They're not quite like they were. They've faded. That's not the case with the inheritance that God has promised. It is unfading. It will never lose its appeal. It will never lose its attractiveness. You will never get bored with what God has given you because it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. As I was meditating on this text this week and thinking about what what would I say if someone came up and said, "What, what is this inheritance? What is it? And because, like I said, we compare things, we try to find something that's close and say, well, it's kind of like this, here's what I would say. Our inheritance as believers is better. It's better. Whatever you can dream up in your mind about the most unbelievable, wonderful, clean, pure thing, it is better than all of that. And yeah, we can't, We can't write a paragraph and say, here's exactly what it is, and after 10,000 years, it's going to be this, and after 100,000 years, it's going to be this. We don't have that, but we have descriptive words. We have things that help us in the Bible come to know that it is secure because God's keeping it. It's undefiled. It'll never be touched by sin. It's clean, and it will never, ever, ever lose its appeal. That's the inheritance that you're going for as a Christian. What is it? It's better. It's better. Number two, the riches of his inheritance. Number three, the greatness of his power. If the calling shows the beginning, the hope which you were called to, and the inheritance shows the end, the the direction that we're headed, then I think that God telling us about God's power is what preserves us through the middle and gets us from the start to the end. Look at verse 19. That you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. If God were to make a promise to his people, like an inheritance waiting for them, and yet he was powerless to fulfill that promise, what good is the promise? 
I could promise you a check for a million dollars, but I don't have the power or the ability to make that actually happen. So what good is that promise? It's not. Not so with God. Paul uses these words. He stacks up these words in the text. Look at verse 19. Greatness, power, working, or translated strength, and might. Whenever the biblical writers stack things up like this, it's to help us know that we need to pay attention to what's going on, that this is very important. God is not just powerful. God is all-powerful. He possesses all wisdom and knowledge and power and is able to put that into practice and put it into use. The fact that Paul uses the term immeasurable greatness, it's a power so great that it cannot be calculated. It cannot be even fathomed how powerful God is. But how do we see that power? Can you see it? You can read about it here. But how do you know this? How do you see this? Paul said this in Romans 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. How do we see God's power? Well, one of the ways is by looking at the created world around us. This past fall, our family drove through West Virginia and through the Blue Ridge Mountains. It was beautiful. I'd never, none of us had ever been out there. And you go over these overpasses and you look down for miles and you see these valleys and trees and whatever. It's so beautiful. But you know what? The Blue Ridge are like an anthill compared to the Rockies. The Rockies stretch some 3,000 miles from British Columbia all the way down to New Mexico, reaching over 14,000 feet above sea level. What an unbelievable display of God's power. Or for some of you who have been to the Grand Canyon or seen some of these things in the created universe. Think about some of the animals that God created. Did you know that the African bush elephant grows over 10 feet tall and weighs 14,000 pounds? What kind of a God creates that kind of thing? A God of unlimited power. Think about spiritual things, though. We can see God in creation, but what about his power that we observe in our emotions and spiritual life? Think of God's power to answer prayer. I know that if I talk to each one of you, you could give me examples of answered prayer. That's God's power at work. What about when you pray for someone to come to know Jesus and they do? God saves them. What a demonstration of God's power in rescuing someone from darkness and bringing them into his family. And not just for you, but for every Christian who has ever existed. <laughs> Think of this in terms of like parenting. You, you provide for the children that God has given to you. Now imagine providing for every child in the world for all time. <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling. You couldn't. But God is a loving Father. He is also an all-powerful Father who answers prayer, who shows us His will through His Word. The demonstration of God's power is all around us. We just got to look for it. Paul says here in Ephesians 1 that this immeasurable greatness of God's power is towards us who believe. 
What does that mean? This unlimited power of God is towards us. What's he talking about? I think the key to understanding this is to look at who is the recipient? Who's on the receiving end of this power? It is those who believe. In Christ, because of faith in Jesus, all the power of God is not working against you, but for you. In Christ, you're shielded from God's wrath. We we saw this again in Romans 5. In Christ, the power of God is working for you. God works all things together for your good as a child of His. It's like in the Old Testament. When we read about God turning his face towards us. Remember number 6, Psalm 67. Be gracious to us, lift up your face towards us. That's an act of God turning towards you in favor, not in judgment. And so when we read here that this power of God is towards us who believe, we should think of this as God leveraging all of his resources, all of his might, all of his power for your good in Christ. Now, if you are not in Christ, that isn't true of you. And the power and the wrath and the anger against sin are against you, which is why we need a substitute to take our place. We need Jesus to step in, to bear that wrath of God, to propitiate our sin, to satisfy the wrath of God so that we can stand before him. This is what it means for God's power to be towards us. And of course, one of the clearest demonstrations of God's power was when he raised Jesus from the dead. This is what we're going to see next week as we close the chapter. Paul is saying this greatness of God's power <coughs> excuse me, was demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So next week, I hope you plan to come back. We're going to look at a doctrine of Christ. What it means for the power of God to have raised him from the dead, seated him in the heavens, and now what is he doing? We're going to look at that next Sunday, so I hope that you make plans to come back. So we saw this morning in our text the hope to which we were called. We saw the riches of the inheritance that's waiting for us and the power of God that is for us and towards us. So I invite you to pray as we come to the table this morning. Father, what an encouragement to know that you have not called us to nothingness, but you have called us, Father, to a hope in Jesus. Lord, would every one of us who hear my voice this morning, Lord, have confidence that no matter what goes on around us, we have the hope of Christ. And if there are those who don't have that hope or who have it but are not confident in it, Father, by your Spirit, work in their hearts right now at this moment to build into them a confidence and a reliance upon you that your Holy Spirit would be here and present and working That by your great and immeasurable power, Lord, you would bring us to the place where we can say, my citizenship is in heaven and my hope is in Jesus. Make this true in us as a church and as believers.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.